again, every hour, on the hour, huffing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first, but that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight, every hour on the hour. KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up to today's show: breads, fungi, and fuel cells. We'll also be joined by Shuram Noalam to talk about the survival of the sickest. Also, you'll find out what a hypercube is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokotron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week. We're coming right up here on the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Back to Brooklyn Rocks. I'm Frank Ling, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of celebration. Celebration. <laughs> I feel like a winner, man. Don't you know. You? Well, I feel like an older man. Really? As if time has passed by and marked a certain turning point in our lives. Most kids, when they're six, can、uh, run around, speak intelligible English, but I'm still mumbling. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to get the basics of my bodily functions together. So. <laughs> well, you don't use diapers, right? <laughs> I don't wear pants either, so it doesn't matter. Efficient, I must say. Yeah, well. <laughs> If anyone's wondering. This is our sixth anniversary, right? Wow, six years on the air. Wow, six years I've known you, <laughs> plus a little more, I guess. Happy anniversary! Happy anniversaries! High five! <laughs> High five! There you go. <laughs> that officially marks the six-year anniversary mark. That high five. Yes.、Uh, it should actually be a high six, I guess. Really.、Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll do a high one to make、right. up for it. That was that was a one in case you heard that. So what exactly are we? Are we、uh, clowns pretending to be scientists, pretending to be journalists, pretending to be funny? I, I sometimes forget what kind of show this is actually supposed to be. Stream of consciousness.、Uh, apparently, based on what we're talking about right now. So I'm not sure exactly what the six-year anniversary is supposed to be. Is it like the paper anniversary, or is it the actinide anniversary? The sixth element, carbon. Carbon. Yes, of course. Well, so, we are made of carbon, so. All right. We'll call it the carbon anniversary then. <laughs> And this show is just like a carbon copy of all our other shows.、So. <laughs> It's the same story every week.、Right? Uh, yeah, we science. We just change the characters a little bit. Right, and the ending is always the same. The butler did it. <laughs> But you know, it's like those movies. We tell you what's going to happen first, and then you find out what led up to it. So,、uh, how exactly do you want to celebrate? You know, the best way to celebrate would be an animal fact of the week. I don't have one, in fact, nor a quote, nor a vegetable.、Uh, well, see, that in itself, I guess, would be a good way to celebrate. How about a cake? Be nice. But you know what? You might want to think twice. <laughs> Why is that? New study shows that too much carbs, particularly bread consumption, could lead to、um, renal cancer. 
what is it with carbohydrates and cancer? We know that the more carbs you take, the more insulin that you need to produce. And that has actually many secondary effects on your body, which may or may not be good. Mm -hmm. And they now conclusively have evidence to show that there's a correlation between bread intake and a kidney cancer. Not just bread, but also pasta and rice. Mm. You know, more evidence that high-carb, refined carbohydrate diet is not good for us. And I was just getting used to high-fructose corn syrup. You just drink it out of the can, right? Well, I have it as an IV. It's that good. <laughs> I IV my vodka. <laughs> this was published by the International Union Against Cancer and the International Journal of Cancer online now. All right, and another great way to celebrate an anniversary, hydrogen-fueled cars. Hydrogen-fueled cars? I can almost lick that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You might want to breathe it, I guess, more than lick it. (laughs) A lot of research, of course, going into seeing how we can actually store hydrogen and oxygen in a fuel. That is a small problem, I've heard. Yeah, well, you know, without blowing up, I guess, in your face. (laughs) It's also very expensive. (laughs) Right. So people are trying to use different types of materials known as metal organic frameworks to actually hold these hydrogen and oxygen, right, where the uh, hydrogen and oxygen will get uh, trapped in pores in the metal organic framework. So researchers are trying to work on it, see what the most optimal condition is. Of course, you would think just intuitively, well, make the pore as big as possible so you could store as much um, oxygen or hydrogen in there, right? Mm-hmm. turns out that, in fact, as the pore gets much larger, the affinity for the gas actually becomes much less. So just making the pore size bigger won't increase your capacity. You would actually want smaller pore size for a greater surface area, right? That's what they're saying, is that, in fact, you want to balance both the affinity right. and also the capacity of the pore. So there's I a see. happy medium between the two. Uh-huh. And in the particular material they're working with, they said it had a diameter of some 0.7 nanometers or so. Oh, okay. So, pretty small. Very fascinating stuff, and stuff that'll be going in your fuel car. Maybe when we're doing our 10th anniversary special, we can <laughs> talk yeah. about that. I wonder if Ford and GM will still be around then. If so, certainly won't be supporting this show. <laughs> they haven't thus far. <laughs> and this was published in a recent edition of Ungivan Chemie, the international edition. So, Charles, do you still feel like a fun guy? I'm certainly not part of the animal kingdom, no. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not much of a plant either, so... (laughs) Okay. Turns out fungus are actually more closely related to animals than they are to plants. In 1998, scientists had actually discovered that the fungi split from the animals about 1.538 billion years ago, whereas plants split from the animals 1.547 billion years ago. So plants departed about 9 million years earlier than fungi. Oh, okay. Considering the error in these measurements, it may not really mean that much. (laughs) Well, considering the close relationship I have with the fungus on my feet, very closely related. (laughs) And actually, if you look at the cell structures of fungi and human cells, they're actually quite similar, which is why a lot of medicine have difficulty killing just the fungus and not harming the patients. Right. But what's more interesting right now is scientists are trying to figure out what the evolutionary linkages are between the fungi and how they may have evolved from the animal kingdom, you know, 1.538 billion years ago. Sure, they didn't evolve from the fungi, but I guess they uh, split off. Yeah. yeah, but of course, you know, they're used to make bread, beer, cheese, and some antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Still don't know how to um, take advantage of their properties for medicine, agriculture, and mm-hmm. uh, other industries. And uh, one of the interesting findings right now is that when the biology of the time left the oceans and went to the ground, these fungi also came, but a lot of them had maintained or shed off the flagella structure, which they use for telling mm-hmm. themselves. Yeah, right. Scientists are looking at how the flagella structure has evolved to mark the relationships between different species of fungi. Okay. This was work carried out by David McLaughlin, and it was in 
the journal Nature. Okay, and finally, you know, we actually probably should have looked for an article from our favorite journal for the anniversary show. <laughs> oh, the penis. Yes, but unfortunately, this one isn't. So we've gone a whole anniversary episode without an article from our favorite journal. But this is actually from an article in a recent edition of Nature. Students actually may have science superstars on their side. So, of course, everything we try to do on the show for six years is people interested in science. Uh-huh. But not with this kind of star power. It turns out that uh, the Molecular Frontiers Initiative, launched by the first European Chemistry Congress in Budapest, has started a think tank of scientific heavyweights who are basically going to monitor the frontiers of molecular sciences, mostly chemical, to generate ways of stimulating interest for children mm-hmm. in sciences. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be very interesting. Seven of the 23 members are, are going to be Nobel Prize winners. Among those are the fractal ex- expert Benoit Mandelbrot oh. and, of course, the genome entrepreneur Craig Venter. Uh-huh. All the star power lined up to get kids interested in science. And What about f- Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's ever been a greater spokesman for science, has a- I can't think of anyone else. I think he should get a Nobel Prize. All the solar power he's generating. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, just one year, all the Nobel Prizes should go to Arnold. A lot of the activities are going to be internet-based, and apparently there's going to be prizes of about $1,000 for children who can come up with the best questions about molecular science. Cool. Okay, and if you want to learn more about it, you can go to their uh, website, which is at web.mit.edu backslash molecularfrontiers. And that's all for this week's look at current developments in the world of science and technology this week. In a few moments, Dr. Shuram Moalam joins us to talk about the survival of the sickest. This is Berkeley Grox you're listening to. show. Well, the evolutionary theory tells us that only the fittest survive, but a somewhat paradoxical situation exists with the nature of disease. In some cases, disease states may actually confer an evolutionary advantage, leading strangely to the survival of the sickest. Well, joins today on the Grox Science Show to discuss this issue is Dr. Sharon Moalam. Dr. Moalam earned his PhD in the emerging fields of neurogenetics and evolutionary medicine, and has published research in a wide variety of fields from honeybee immunology to the evolutionary advantage of disease. 
His new book, Survival of the Sickest, explores the selective advantage of disease in evolutionary processes. Dr. Moellan, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Great. Thank you for having me. Well, it's really a pleasure to have you on the program. And in your book, this is very fascinating, you argue that numerous disease states may actually have conferred some type of evolutionary advantage in the past, which certainly seems at odds with the classical notion of evolutionary selective advantage via survival of the fittest. Actually, fitness can be disease. I mean, fitness doesn't refer to being fit in any athletic sense of the word. It more has to do with the idea of just being able to survive or being in tune with your current environment. For example, the condition of hemochromatosis, the one that I studied, with 30% of Europeans or people of European ancestry carry these mutations, which predisposes them to absorb too much iron from their diet. And what that does is that iron can end up in organs in pretty high amounts, causing things such as liver cancer or diabetes. And it didn't make any sense to me as a researcher, you know, why would 30% of people of European descent have something that seemingly doesn't make them fit, right, that predisposes them to disease, unless, of course, it offers or offered an evolutionary advantage. In the case of hemochromatosis, I'm proposing that it offered um, a selection advantage against the bubonic plague. I see. This is very fascinating. I think students of biology learn of a similar disease, malaria, with having some sort of resistance conferred upon it by uh, the sickle cell gene. Right. So sickle cell and thalassemia is, you know, the one kind of classic or the two classic examples that people kind of have been taught. But remember, they've been taught this as the exception. What, what I, what's new here is um, claiming that they're not the exception, but rather the rule. If you're dealing with a disease that is very common, and I'm not talking about rare conditions here, then most likely they're still around because they offered a significant selection advantage. Even take high cholesterol, for example. There's a gene that predisposes you, ApoE4, to it. And it, with it, carries risk factors for cardiovascular disease and Alzheimer's. The thing is, it gives you a selection advantage if you're living in an area where these people come from, which is northern Europe, there's not much sunlight, and you need to produce sufficient amount of vitamin D. And your only way to produce vitamin D is through the cholesterol vitamin D pathway using the sun. If there's not enough sun, you just crank up your amount of cholesterol. The only problem is that predisposes you to cardiovascular disease, having that extra cholesterol within your blood. Given the fact that these selective progressions no longer exist, why do these genes uh, continue to stick around then? Right. So, I mean, looking kind of classic evolutionary model, you'd expect that if once the pressure is, is off, that you would expect to see these things disappearing. Yet, for, uh, hemochromatosis, again, fall, uh, use a great example because um, that usually creates a lot of the health problems later on in life after people already have, uh, you know, done their, the deed and taken part in reproduction. So, the big selection pressure to get rid of something that may not be useful today may not be occurring. Plus, remember, as the more we treat people using medicine, the sicker people become because we're essentially curing people and I'm by no means a eugenicist here but we are treating people who would have died otherwise with many of these conditions and they're going on to have kids so we're also this is kind of like artificially keeping people alive and keeping genes in the gene pool that would have naturally you know disappeared with time Indeed, indeed. I think probably one of the uh, well-known examples, of course, is phenylketonuria, which uh, can be treated early in life, and these people can then go on and have children. Yeah, right, exactly. So, you know, this is just the current state. I mean, any condition which is going to have a genetic component to it that we're treating, including cystic fibrosis as a good example, uh, today where there's treatment options available to keep people alive long enough to have children. Well, if they're having children through natural means, that means, and they're, and they're suffering from cystic fibrosis, meaning they have two copies of uh, CF mutations, uh, CFTR mutations, then that means that those genes will be propagated within the gene pool. 
So do you think it's actually is an advantage for the human population as a whole to then keep these genes uh, floating around in the population? I think definitely. I mean, they're there for a reason, and I think it'll be very interesting to see what the future holds re uh, regarding you know this type of research, especially if we have the, uh, the ability, as some bacteria to do, to take part in hypermutation. You know, like does stress increase certain mutations, and can those mutations cross you know the Heisman's barrier cross and enter into germ cells? I mean, that's that's the big question that everyone wants to know because if you think about evolution, it doesn't make sense that evolution wouldn't select for a way for us to take part in our own evolution. Our population or our generation time is so long compared to other organisms that you think for us to be able to survive and to adapt to uh, abrupt you know, environmental changes or pathogens that we should have a built-in system. And you actually you see this with B cells that produce antibodies that they actually go through a state of hypermutation. But these aren't passed down to the next generation. That's why every kid kind of has to go through it. And all the, the hypermutation results in the generation of antibodies that can deal with whatever the child's exposed to. Now, the only problem is that that also predisposes the child to B-cell lymphoma. So, that, I mean, that's, that's, there's always a trade-off when you think of evolution. Indeed, indeed. You did mention earlier that microbes can, in some sense, also influence behavior. And uh, you mentioned in your book the example of herpes, for example, perhaps influencing sexual behavior. Right. So, uh, this was what really fascinates me, because if you think of the model of rabies, the virus causes rabies, you know, it causes aggression in animals. And how do animals express aggression? They usually bite. And uh, it's no accident that the rabies virus also replicates in salivary glands, you know, frothing at the mouth combined with increased aggression, which results in biting, means that the virus has an excellent way for it to spread itself. So when it comes to sexually transmitted diseases, you think about it, there's a condition called Kluver-Busey. It's a syndrome, actually. And one of the causes is a herpes infection. And it's very rare, but some of the kids that get it show behaviors of hypersexuality. In fact, it's so pronounced that many physicians just initially assumed that the kids were abused because they couldn't figure out how a young kid, uh, you know, learned sex moves and when they treated the infection or the infection subsided the behavior just simply disappears and since the virus does infect areas in the temporal lobe in, in the brain in these children which can influence behavior it's not a stretch to start thinking that possibly things that are infecting us are actually changing the way in which uh, we are behaving another example which you do mention also is streptococcus bacteria Right, and I mean, you know, that classic example now is called pandas, and the connection there is it's thought that possibly having a, you know, a strep infection can cause OCD-like behavior, which gets you just to touch things repetitively, and increased touching would help, again, spread the bacteria. So, you know, this is not a form of direct mind control, God, no, this is just overt influence that could help spread a pathogen would essentially help it to survive. Switching gears here a little bit, you talk about aging and in fact, why is there aging at all in the population? Right, so I mean, this is, this is really controversial and most of the people in the aging field don't like this idea, which I mean, that's probably why I'm so warm to it. And this is the one I've been working on, which is biogenic obsolescence. So just 
like cover this in the book, iPods essentially were designed to die because the batteries weren't initially designed to be replaced, right? So um, I believe that many biological organisms, such as ourselves, was also designed with somewhat of a shelf life. And having that shelf life and having kind of like a check-in time that's built in prevents us, especially being social animals, from passing on a parasite load that we may have been accumulating over our lifetime. And that way, that kind of like forced checkout at some point, which, you know, we're living well beyond what I believe we've been designed as an organism to kind of live, like lifespan. So that leaving the herd, so to speak, would benefit the herd because you're reducing the overall pathogen or parasitic load. This is, I guess, really in contrast to uh, the classic notion, which just suggests that once the animal is reproduced, there's no longer a selective pressure or need to uh, keep repairing the body. It actually just becomes expensive to repair the body once reproduction is taking place. Right. And the, I mean, the classic thing that I think people just sometimes overlook is if we are social animals and... Uh, we know we appear to be that, then sticking around and acting as an extra uh, set of hands, helping even beyond reproductive years, is beneficial. And remember, there is also overlap between the genes that groups carry. So helping in a family group situation is overall beneficial for reproduction and definitely for survival. Uh, well, we are only slightly out of time, but I'm just curious, how did you actually become interested in this whole area of disease actually conferring selective advantages? For me, I mean, this was very personal. My grandfather self-diagnosed himself with, with that iron overload condition called hemochromatosis because he just felt better when he gave blood. And it turns out that I have the same condition. So asking these questions that directly influence my health and discovering that a medieval treatment of bloodletting is a treatment of choice for my condition today made me kind of rethink and dig up other treatments and just re-question the whole notion of disease as being negative. I'm curious, uh, where's uh, your research headed now, and do you have any future plans for books? There's a few things in, in the works, definitely, and for follow-up, looking at other organisms. And the main thrust of my work now is trying to come up with antimicrobials uh, based on some of these ideas to kind of like convince them or push them into a direction of not coming up with resistance when they're confronted with antibacterials. Uh, well, it certainly sounds very fascinating, and uh, Dr. Mullen, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's great. Thank you for having me. Hey, thanks a lot, Charles. And he was just talking to Dr. Shuram Mullen on the evolutionary advantage of disease. This is the Grok Science Show you're listening to. In a few moments, the question of the week, so stay right there.
slime with this week's fashion of the week. What's a slime mode? Is it shiny or is it moldy? Who knows? If you know, or you think you know, email us at groxandhotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you won't be so cheesy. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.